Welcome to the Spirit Sisters podcast. My name is Karina Machado and I'm the author of Spirit Sisters, Women's True Stories of the Paranormal. In this podcast, I'll revisit the women behind my most unforgettable stories and unearth new tales to chill, intrigue, astound and offer hope. You'll hear first-hand accounts of ghostly visitors, near-death experiences, premonitions, hauntings and love more powerful than death. Whatever you believe about the afterlife, I invite you to open your minds and hearts as ordinary women reveal their extraordinary encounters. Hi everyone and thank you for joining me on Spirit Sisters the podcast. I'm not long back from overseas and I'm a little bit jet lagged and I've also got a bit of a cold so I do apologize for any croakiness today but I'm so excited to share this conversation with you. It's been many months in the making and it's the first of a two-part special. So earlier this year, my sister-in-law, Danny called me to tell me about a life-changing conversation she'd had with a friend of hers, Sarah, who'd spent most of 2018 fighting for her life with a rare illness. Towards the end of last year, this illness led Sarah to the brink of death and a near-death experience. My skin erupted in goosebumps as Danny, herself near tears, told me some of what Sarah had experienced in her NDE, and I knew I had to speak with her myself. When that finally happened, oh my goodness, I could have listened to Sarah for hours. I knew I was in the company of a rare soul, and I think that will come across today and in our next episode as well. The cardiac diagnostic specialist and mother of three from the southern highlands of New South Wales irradiates peace, gentle wisdom, love, and an unhurried attentiveness to the present moment as she describes how her NDE made clear her purpose but immense suffering preceded this life-altering NDE, which wasn't her first, by the way, though it was the most powerful. And in part one of our conversation, Sarah shares the story of the first NDE and lays out the events that led to her being diagnosed with the rare autoimmune disorder Bichette's disease and how that led to her second NDE late last year. This episode, Sarah details her extraordinary near-death experience in which she met her beloved mentor and father, himself a renowned cardiologist, and relates the profound impact of her life review and the lessons it carried about the power of choice. Do we turn to love every moment? asks Sarah. And as she says, we are here to look after and serve one another in love, through love, and with love. I'm honoured to present part one of my conversation with Sarah. So welcome, Sarah, to the Spirit Sisters podcast. It's so beautiful to have you here. Thank you, Karina. It's just such a privilege to be able to join you and share my story with you. Oh, well, I think the privilege is all mine and the listeners will agree when they hear your story. So let's begin by just hearing a little bit about you, your background, how you grew up, all of that. Who is Sarah? Okay, well, it's probably a very typical one of most people in Sydney area in Australia. Um, lived near a beach. Uh, grew up in my younger years, 1970s, Sydney culture 
beach style. I had, I've got a twin sister and we had a little bit of a different upbringing in that our father is, was a doctor, was a great healer and that permeated all aspects of our mm. life. Um, so weekends may normally, for most children, have been spent hanging out with friends. We hung out at the hospital. And from ah. a very young age, I can remember begging him to take me on rounds with him so I could, from young, young, four, maybe four or five years of age, begging him to take me with him so I could watch him care for his patients. And he would take me. And then my twin sister would get upset because that meant she had to come and she was not aligned with that. And we used to, he used to work at um, Sutherland Hospital, which is southern Sydney, and we would sit at the nurse's station and watch him do his rounds and then we would be allowed to go to the little wishing well which was outside the front of the hospital and make a wish and I think that was the one thing my twin sister liked that was all she liked about it but I very much from a very young age healing has been a very big part of our family. Totally appreciate that so your father Sarah what was his name? His name was John Woolridge but we all called him Jack even I even I called him Jack from a very young age. Um, he was a cardiologist and he actually, a lot of people say that we all know our purpose in life from a very young age. He went to, he was at World War II and a fighter pilot in World War II mm. and came back and after four years at war and the government back then had a scheme where they would probably similar to our HEX scheme now, but they would pay for the men that returned to go and do a university degree. And he just asked what the longest one was, which was medicine, and that's how he started medicine, but then spent the rest of his life serving with compassion and care beyond anything I've ever witnessed in my life. And his one true, true love in this world was cardiology and the heart. And my, so my memories of childhood are basically watching my father study very hard. At night I would get up even at 3 a.m. in the morning. He would always be up studying. He would he would spend every moment serving others, so, really. Yep, it sounds like he had a, an incredibly profound influence on your life. I mean, it's a very unusual thing to hear that a four-year-old would ask her dad to go and, mm -hmm. you know, accompany him on, on rounds in a hospital. Mm -hmm. So that tells me a little bit about perhaps the calling that was inside you as well to heal. Mm. And I didn't realise that at the time, no. but it has, it has played a major role in what has formed my life and I feel like we may not know what our calling is, but you can't deny it. It is there. It is once you get still enough to find out, it is there and you, I think maybe, when we don't answer that calling, that's when we start getting restless with our lives mm -hmm. or that's how I feel. We, we do all have a purpose and a calling to serve each other and we get so caught up in parameters of what modern-day society calls success and lose maybe the path to our true calling. I'm hoping that I can move forward and help heal in other ways yeah so your father being a cardiologist mm. did that influence you in your own choice of career because you too went on to become mm. a heart specialist 
Definitely, definitely. He um, tried to talk me out of it. I was very young. I graduated school when I was 16 and had articulated a very big desire to do medicine. And at that time, he felt that it would be very hard for me to follow in a path that he knew was very demanding and also have the opportunity of being a very present mother. He said that it would take, it would mean a lot of sacrifices elsewhere in life. I went, actually took that advice on and went off to university and studied commerce for a year and decided this was definitely not my path and joined him in his practice for a little while just to have a look at see how it works and went, yes, this is definitely where I want to be. Then he spent the next few years mentoring me, teaching me, helping me through exams and I eventually graduated and joined his practice and worked with him for 20 years by his side. We worked together in practice together and it was the most rewarding teaching experience of my life, of all the true lessons in life. We had a beautiful relationship as father-daughter but we had a very beautiful relationship as he was a wonderful mentor and he taught me so much and I witnessed firsthand true compassion, how he always had time for every patient. He made everyone feel like they were part of our family and he taught me how valuable that is as a healer, how you are not, you're not here just to be a doctor, you're here to serve and working by his side just opened my eyes up to what true compassionate love and service was. What an and incredibly was, rare thing to have. I was very, very grateful to have such a beautiful, rewarding experience and being able to spend so many years working by his side. And I don't think he would have ever given up, unfortunately, age. He worked till he was 90. Oh. And I, he worked until he was 90 Incredible. and he would have kept going. Um, unfortunately, dementia and age meant that he could no longer keep serving in that capacity. But um, he was a true healer. Wow, what an extraordinary parent to have. That is amazing. And what about your mum? Was she in the medical field as well? She was. That's Yeah, she actually is like me, a yeah. cardiac imaging specialist. Ah. So she actually, in the practice, we all work together. So I have a very, I'm very lucky that we had a beautiful, tight-knit family working around this sole purpose of providing cardiac care in the Sutherland Shire and we all worked together and we had a beautiful practice that felt like home to everyone I think all our patients said the same thing to us they all felt like they were part of our family and that they were in good hands and we we worked very well together as a team you mm. looked after hearts as a family I find it mm. so poetic mm. and beautiful you know mm. and it was our conversations at the dinner table were not what most families talk about <laughs> we all had such a passion and love of this field that it really did dominate a lot of our conversation. It was very lucky in that we all had that same passion and desire to to know as much as we could and to push the boundaries and to we travelled extensively to educate ourselves with all new breaking um, technologies mm -hmm. and 
we tried to bring everything back that we could to serve our patients, all the new heart valves, new surgical procedures. We really felt very compelled to stay abreast with everything that was and, and bring it all back. And we um, were very lucky that we had the opportunities to do so. And it was an ex- a very exciting time in cardiology. Okay. Every, everything changed very quickly. It was a very, very exciting time to be involved in that. It's, um, I look back now and think how far we've come. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yes. But it was a very, that, that formed a very big part of my world for the first, until, until I turned 40. That was a very big part of my world. And mm. so immersed as you were in the scientific medical field and in, actually your entire family mm. was immersed as you were, did you have any interest in spiritual matters and or near-death experiences prior to your own NDE? It's a very interesting question. I haven't really reflected back on that other than to say I really know. I was, we were very scientific-based. I, I did not have a spiritual awareness in that sense. It was all very much medically, scientifically proven or not. So it was not with my my mother had a very religious background. It was not that we didn't have a religious theme through our family, but the spiritual aspect was not one that was ever really discussed or that I was aware of. Patients may have shared certain experiences, ah. but they were never explored any further. And for that, I'm a little bit regretful. I didn't have the expanded awareness to delve deeper into that. And I now wish I had that. I had that ability to fully comprehend what I was being told. Mm-hmm. So you would have moments where your patients would say, you know, when I was having the cardiac arrest, I was out of my body or that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yes, right. definitely. Yeah. So I, I had that awareness with the patients that probably were brave enough to bring it up. Yeah. Um, back a lot of the doctors the specialists in the cardiac field are very closed off to that sort of discussion. I am um, not not really one with which they would encourage patients to discuss. It's it would be more what are your symptoms? Are you okay? Not what did you experience sure. while we were putting a pacemaker in or um, they the few that opened up very much a few accounts of being aware of going into a tunnel or mm-hmm. seeing a bright white light or being aware of themselves above their body. So, yes, I was aware of a few accounts of that. But like I said, unfortunately, in my immature little world of only thinking of medical science, I didn't delve any deeper. I didn't pull back the layers to find out mm. any more. I may now approach it quite differently mm-hmm. if I was given the same set of circumstances. Then by the time that you had your first near-death experience, because you've had two, so mm. the first one was in 2002 when you mm. were having a baby. Mm. Um, so by the time that that had happened, you hadn't actually delved into near-death experiences, read any near-death experience no. books, nothing. Nothing. Yeah. Okay. No, so. no, absolutely nothing. And I can really, even now, only in the last maybe two or three months have I started saying I would really like to read more literature on this and understand my own experiences a bit more so yes even up until right now I have Mm. really had no understanding or exposure to any of this phenomena but my first experience was that both both experiences were similar in how they made me feel and the emotion attached with them but they were very different experiences um, 
the first one I was 2002. Um, I had just delivered a baby and I was hemorrhaging internally and it was not caught till a few hours later and I had developed um, a rare occurrence which is called a broad ligament hematoma and the blood loss was pooling into the hematoma which at one point if it gets too big it just bursts. At the time of surgery it my, my surgeon examined me and at that time we didn't have Google. You, you couldn't just go and get on the internet and put a term in and say surgical techniques or um, he had examined me and he came back to me and said I've only been able to find three cases of this in the literature to look at the surgical techniques. I will do everything to save you. You have my word but I just don't know how I'm going to do it. He was very open with me about that. We had a very, very good relationship. I was in so much pain by that point that I probably didn't even care. I was in that much pain. I just wanted to be out of pain. So it had been quite a few hours. I do, I remember going, they lost the key to the theatre. I do remember lying out on the bed waiting for them to try and unlock the theatre doors. I remember going into the theatre and the anaesthetist how they put the mask on and say count back and I remember struggling and really wanting to be very conscious of my counting and I don't know why didn't want to go under because I think I had a sixth sense that I would not come out so the last thing I remember was getting to about five and then the next thing I was aware of was I was actually watching the surgery from above could see the anaesthetist at my behind me and the surgeon beside me and the nurse next to him and one on the other side and I was above my body watching and listening to what they were saying and the anaesthetist was saying my blood pressure was crashing the surgeon said back you know I can't stem the bleeding I can't seem to stop it and I was very calm it was very like just a very matter of fact which is when you think about it why would I not be panicking but you don't panic it was just a very calm watching my own body and then I was very aware of my grandfather's energy or presence and I knew it was my grandfather and he said to me it's not your time you need to go back then the next thing I was aware of was waking up in recovery with a nurse next to me saying oh you've had a rough ride or something along those lines. The surgeon and the anaesthetist both visited me afterwards and the shock that I survived, that they that I came back and that I survived, was very much one that we were all looking at each other going, I can't believe you're here. Since then, the anaesthetist, every year on the birthday of my son, the anaesthetist and the surgeon send me cards every year to say sort of like happy birthday to you, happy you you're here, you're still here, um, wow. and, and, and fill me in on their life and ask me to fill them in on mine. And we've, unfortunately, um, the anaesthetist passed a few years ago. Oh. The surgeon has had his own health issues. But we all still bond on that day mm. about the remarkable events that happened that day. And I told them both that I witnessed what they were doing and they both confirmed what they had said to each other and where everyone was standing in the room and so they verified your account they verified my account Mm. to me and that was my very first experience of anything that could be out of body or a non-local consciousness an ability to not be in your body but be aware of what's going on and also a sense of passing and then coming back 
And was that also your first experience of meeting a late loved one in spirit? Yes. Okay. Yes. And I, the little, my boy that was born, Oscar, I was very sick after that. I had cardiac complications and it took me about six months to recover. It was um, a, a really hard time. But my little, my little baby boy, I often sensed my grandfather looking over him. Even in those first six months, I don't know how I knew it, but I would look at him in the cot and he would be looking at something or laughing and not at me. And I couldn't get out of bed. I was too sick. I'd lost too much blood to get out of bed for a long time. But even as a little boy when he was two and playing with trains, I would sort of catch something in my eye and think, that's Pa watching my little boy. And I just knew and I don't know how and that was sort of a start of the awakening the start of the process of being aware of an energy and knowing what that energy knowing who that energy belonged to Mm. that was the beginning yeah so um in what ways did you reflect on the the near-death experience that you'd had did was it something that it took you a long time to process you were in bed for six months physically very ill so did you reflect on it how did it change your life if so it changed my life in the way that I knew I had been given another chance and that I could very easily not have been there or been there to be with my my children it changed my life in I now wonder why I didn't question how or why or I I just I just accepted I just accepted that it was and that our the people we love are there looking after us. I just accepted and I didn't question too much about it. Um, I don't know if that was because I was so sick and then I just got busy back into being a mum and went on with life and just went, okay, well, that was, it was what it was and I just went on. I just did, really didn't give it any more thought. Okay, yeah. so it's only really in retrospect that you look back and think that mm. was the beginning of mm. a new dawning of understanding. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, like all things in life, yes. retrospect. <laughs> Retrospect's a wonderful thing. Yeah, but it, now I can look back and say, oh, I, I see how that was the beginning of me op- having more of an open awareness of a spiritual or divine realm or okay. an afterlife, or that we we don't just die, mm-hmm. that our body is just a body. I, I I think it was just the beginning of that awareness, but I needed uh, probably. Like all things in life, the harder concepts take a little bit more time maybe to settle within our consciousness for us to really contemplate and understand the significance. And I guess I have just sat with it. Like, like you do in meditation, you sit, with, you sit with it and just peacefully let it come to you. And I guess that's what I've done through the years, just sit with it and peacefully let it come to me in a more defined form of awareness. Okay. So, as you said, life was quiet for a few years following mm. then, you know, following that um, mm. that quite traumatic episode. And so you were enjoying motherhood. So you had two children by then, mm. Sarah? So I had, had, yes. Emily, who is six years older than Oscar. Okay. So we had Emily and then Oscar was quite a few years later. And then after that, three years later, we had Charlotte, our last little our last little surprise. Okay. A surprise. <laughs> That's interesting too because you had mm. mentioned to me that your mm. first child was, you know, you had you had had to almost fight to get her. Mm. But yeah. Both both our first two were fertility babies and 
I was told after the delivery of the second baby that I would not survive another another delivery and that I must not have any other children. And I was, that's fine because it's probably not going to happen. And we just accepted that we had two beautiful children and lived life until our beautiful little Charlotte was sent to us. Wow. So that's 2005 Charlotte was born mm. And yep. then your health took a drastic turn. Tell us about it what did. happened when Charlotte was born. It did. I was, um, I had to have Charlotte by a C-section. We scheduled it four weeks earlier than delivery date so that I would not go into labour and risk putting my body into that risk. I, I had a reaction to the anaesthetic and she was taken away and put into the nursery and 24 hours later I was very distraught that I had not been brought my baby. I was very upset that I had not seen my baby since delivery. Mm-hmm. Um, we were in a country hospital and I remember waking up and thinking, I'm going to go and find her. And I took one step out of the bed and thought, oh, that's my left side felt odd. And then I thought, felt like I'd been stung by a bee on my tongue and my mouth felt very funny. And then I tried to walk and my left side would not work and it was quite rapidly deteriorating and I thought I'll try and get my phone and ring my husband and tell him. I, I, have, I had seen and heard patients' accounts of stroke enough for my brain to say, you're having a stroke. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is a stroke. You know you're having a stroke. You need to get help. I was trying to understand the numbers on the phone to hit to dial my husband and I think it was three attempts I managed to get through to him but by then my speech was very garbled and didn't come out in any coherent words. Right. Luckily he was in the car and I then I, I just put the phone down. I don't even think I managed to hang it up. Um, it might have been five minutes he, or less he got to me and could see that I was definitely in need of help. We, um, you have to have an MRI to make sure you're not having a bleed into the brain before you can have treatment for a stroke, which is heparin, to dissolve any clots. Okay. Or, um, so we went through that whole process. I was just very, very lucky, one, that I was in hospital and, two, that I got timely treatment so that there are not huge, severe, impacting effects on my life moving forward. However, it was enough that it took me. I couldn't hold my baby with my left side. Mm. My left side was very, very weakened from being paralysed for so long. Trying to learn to walk again, trying to learn to talk again, trying to learn everything basically. I remember my eldest daughter was in probably, I think it was fourth class or third class, sitting down months after when I, months of recovery after I had learnt the basic words and talking again and with stroke, getting very tired affects you. So even now, if I get tired, I start to slur like I've been drinking or so the effects are still right, here, right. but nowhere near as much as back in 2005 and the recovery. But I, d- I did have to consciously sit down and do third year maths again and try and teach myself multiplication and so I essentially had to teach myself my whole career again that is amazing to to get back into my work and it was a very I'm very driven and I'm very passionate and when I love something I throw myself into it but I did have to take a step back for a long time to try and relearn everything 
it's a lot to fathom, you know, and mm. you being a senior medical specialist having mm. to go through all of that is mm. it's very eye-opening. I can't imagine how that affected you and your family. But that's the physical effect. The effect that's probably more profound is that the left side of my brain it wasn't calling the shots during the stroke. My right side was. And the right side is responsible for present awareness mm -hmm. and in the moment awareness. And when the logical brain of thinking and planning is shut down and the other, the right hemisphere is being the master, then you become very aware, or I did, became very aware of the oneness of everything and very aware I remember looking out the window, the hospital window and the trees and the leaves and the everything. I felt truly, truly connected to everything and knew, knew that it, we were all joined, everything, animals, humans, trees, everything in that, we're all joined together as one as one we are mm. all we are all united and that I was very aware of that in the moment of stroke and because my logical brain wasn't going calling the shots mm -hmm. and telling me it's it, it became very obvious to me and it has stayed with me even with recovery I now look very differently at nature and look very differently at I now feel a true connection to everything and that ability to see it through that expanded awareness only came about through the stroke. That's extraordinary. Yeah. And even as somebody who's only just met you, I um, well, we, I, we know each other through our mutual, my mm. sister-in-law, Danny, and I was mm. talking to her this morning and it's so interesting you mentioned that about present awareness because I was saying that to Danny about how the first thing I sensed about you was this, um, this, this thing of being in the present moment, this gift mm. that you have of doing that. And it it has a, a a resonance. It projects outwards to calm. Well, it felt like to me mm. to calm me and anchor me in that present moment. So I could really sense that. Mm. So it's it's amazing that you say that that's what happened and that's been the the lasting effect of that. And we also spoke on the phone, me and you, the other day about mm. how um, that there's a. A lady, a, a doctor. I've can't remember. Mm. She's a specialist. Jill Bolte Taylor. Jill Bolte Taylor. That's and correct. Your mm. um, experience mm. mirrors hers as well. And she's done a, a highly viewed TED talk mm. and written a book called My Stroke of Insight. And your experience parallels mm. it so much. Very much so. I um, haven't read her book. I have only been aware of her TED talk in the last couple of weeks. I do remember crying uncontrollably when watching it because really? it was like my experience being told on stage oh. it was so similar it was and it was it took me back to that beautiful awareness that a stroke the gift of that stroke is that beautiful awareness of how magnificently we are all united oh. and it's such a and, and and present moment awareness is so important and so vital in how we can stop ourselves from being caught up so much in the stress of the future or the anxiety of the past and we miss all the beautiful things that are being given to us right in front of us every day and that present awareness I feel has been the beautiful gift that stroke gave to me and I feel I'm I feel lucky I feel very lucky if I slur my words that doesn't matter because it gave me an awareness of 
being able to look and see with different eyes and feel and not rush through mm. not rush not rush through all the beautiful things that are that I'm experiencing every day and maybe even the recovery post process of not being able to rush around and being mm. forced to be still yeah and and be able to enjoy just lying with a child by my side feel and feeling their little hand in mine and truly being grateful to have that moment I think I've tried to extend that I'm human like everyone and I fall off the horse occasionally and find myself being wrapped up in a stressful moment but I do try and bring myself back to the focus of that's not what this is all about yeah yeah and it seems like that if we could just um, grasp the importance of the present moment awareness it could potentially Mm -hmm. be an antidote to the epidemic of anxiety mm. that is just rampant in our society mm. at the moment. There is um, there is quite a bit of research coming out now, and I think I think as a human race, a lot of what we're taught is don't pay attention until there's scientific data to prove it. Yeah, and I think the very important process of that is it's now coming out. The scientific data is now coming out to show that mindfulness and an approach, and I I didn't really understand what mindfulness was. I can admit I was very, very behind in the concept of what it actually meant. But now that I truly understand what it means and how practicing mindfulness in your daily life, it does, it's, it's the wonderful antidote for stress and depression and anxiety and lowering blood pressure mm. and and so many other other areas medically of how our mind is the antidote our perception yeah. yeah our perception of reality and our mind is so powerful in healing and i that's i find very interesting but i think the scientific data and the significant scientific data that's being now released is very important okay. and hopefully that makes us all start to realize this is this matters it matters and it's in our hands as well it's a mm. natural remedy we have, and it's yeah, free we have power yeah <laughs> amazing yeah. it's free yeah, it's free and we have the power to do it and yeah. it's easy it's very easy anyone can do it well we'll mm. we'll talk more about um your mm. new sort of the path that you're taking into research mm. of new uh, modalities of healing um because in many ways it was your second mm. nde that led yes. you to to sort of galvanize that that new path that way forward. So let's just um, continue with, so in the wake of your stroke, Sarah, you had this this burgeoning spiritual understanding, mm. but at the same time you were struggling physically with a mm. lot of problems and the stroke led to five mm. years of pain and hospitalisation. Tell us about that time that culminated with the diagnosis that your father diagnosed mm. you with. Yes, I um, after the stroke, I was doing well in the full sense of the term. I, sorry, Sarah, can you just say that again? We lost you for a moment there. Just say that. Oh, type. sorry. No, that's all right. Um, after the, can you hear me now? Yes. Yep. After the stroke, I did. I did struggle to return to what I would have defined as well. I used to be a very avid runner and swim. I used to run eight kilometers a day and swim a couple of kilometers a day. Commute to work. I live in barrel in the southern highlands I would commute down to Sydney to work and work a very long day then commute home and I could do that for years and and not have a problem however I started feeling very fatigued and 
after a few months, it just was getting worse and worse to the point where I would wake up and think, I just can't run today. I'll get to work, but I can't do it. And I just started dropping things off my what I could do list until life contracted down to very little. And that was just a silly little, like a sort of almost non-consequential. And I just put it down to getting older. I was at that point, I was almost 40. Then I started getting ulcers all through my everywhere, Mm. everywhere through my body. And I started getting arthritis in all my joints, in my knees and ankles, so that walking almost became impossible, my wrists, my elbows. And then I started getting a lot of chest pain when I tried to walk. And within pretty much, I started getting significant symptoms in the November of 2009. And by Valentine's Day 2010, I pretty I, I deteriorated within four days very and I ended up in hospital in Prince of Wales Hospital in multiple organ failure and pretty much fighting for my life and stayed there for a long time with infectious disease, doctors, immunology, cardiology, neuro all trying to work out what was going on. And I had three inflammatory lesions in my brain, so that was picked up and was held responsible for my concussed feeling or confusion or headaches and I had chronic inflammation of my heart muscle so fluid around my heart which meant it feels like something's crushing you basically squeezing your heart so trying to breathe trying to walk and breathe at the same time everything became very very hard and and the arthritis got to the point where I do remember being sent for an MRI of my body and when I came out the um radiologist didn't have my file and he just looked at me and he said have you been in a horrific car accident Mm. and I said no but that's what my scan was showing up that's how all my bones and joints were Um, that was a long period and eventually my father had diagnosed a case he trained in Edinburgh in Scotland and he remembered a case like this and came in and one day I remember him saying to my medical team could it be Bichette's disease and everyone was like no we haven't got any of those cases in Australia um that it is a genetic disorder and yes I was diagnosed with it's it's there's a few pronunciations Bichette's or Bichette's when it attacks the heart and the brain it's called neurocardio Bichette's disease which is what I was diagnosed with it's a vasculitis neurologically it can cause aneurysms in the brain or inflammation in the brain where you get chronic meningitis, inflammatory meningitis, encephalitis. And I had at that point yet to get to that point. Okay. I had just I just had the inflammatory lesions in the brain which are like tumours which are not malignant but they're inflammatory. So essentially it's your body is attacking your your organs because it's no longer recognizing them it's essentially trying to reject your own organs so i was started on a lot of anti but when you have a a transplant a donor transplant you're put on anti-rejection therapy Mm -hmm. so i was put on a lot of anti-rejection therapy along with a a whole cocktail of other drugs um prednisolone and everything i was put on I failed in that you have to try every form of conventional treatment to progress to the next level. And I spent the next couple of years trialing conventional medicine and then going on to experimental trials um, 
some had limited response where I might be well for wellish, well enough for eight weeks or three months, but then I would ultimately fail again and end up back in hospital again. And that's when probably two years, three years into it, that's when it got really hard when I started getting very life-threatening attacks of encephalomeningitis and myocarditis, which is the heart muscle no longer working properly, and pericarditis, which is fluid around the heart. And that seems to be what has been what my body wants to do. (laughs) No matter matter what we threw at it, it kept wanting to do that. And we eventually... There was a new immunotherapy treatment being trialled and I got onto that and responded beautifully and was given a lovely two-year respite where I was back to myself and able to go back to work, able to be a present mum, able to get back to running, get back to swimming and essentially get back to life. Uh, and, uh, And I thought the drug it's an infusion that you have every six weeks you go into oncology and have it infused and and you're well and you and it starts wearing out and you know that you need to go and have it again it was an amazing miracle life-saving drug for me Mm -hmm. and I was very lucky that it was approved for use unfortunately my body developed antibodies to it which Mm. meant it it started not working as efficiently so after three weeks I would start getting feeling all my symptoms again Uh. and the time got shorter and shorter and shorter to the point where I would have it and nothing would happen oh gosh how I can't imagine how disappointing that would have Mm. been for you and and Mm. your family to think Mm. oh here we go again it was exactly that that's exactly how we felt and I think I felt Knowing what I had been through, oh, I don't know that I can do this again. Yeah. Like knowing how, knowing what a fight I had ahead of me. Yes. We then consulted a new medical team to try and work out what do we do now. And my husband, who is a vet and medically understands research and therapies and treatments, and my eldest daughter, who is 22, and I don't know if it's because she's been around medicine her whole life or is under, and she's been studying psychology at UNSW and has only just graduated last week. But at that period late in the beginning of la- last year, they both put themselves into just researching every clinical trial they could find wow. anywhere in the world for any autoimmune disorder to try and find a treatment option to save me, basically. Wow. I was in hospital and came up with a few options. Um, two options seemed to have limited responses and one had very good response. The problem, the first one was to do cyclophosphamide chemotherapy, which was readily available and I could do. Um, it had limited responses, but we thought it was worth a try. The second treat, drug was an immuno, another new immunotherapy treatment, which was not currently listed as an approved option for treating me oh. in Australia. So we, my medical team, decided that I should start the cyclophosphamide chemotherapy pretty quickly. Yeah. So we, we jumped onto that. So what I time told, frame are we looking at now? This was last year? Last year yeah. I was very sick from... We were working all this out from, so there's uh, the way they keep me going is through a treatment called high dose 
pulsed methylprednisolone, which is very high doses of prednisone, and you do that for a couple of days, and that gives me a bit of a respite, along with a whole other cocktail of treatments um, that are just like Band-Aids. They just sort of patch you up and try and keep you going, Right. try and keep you going until we can get a new treatment. Um, this was March. I was started getting very – my father passed away in March and I managed to be by his side and then two weeks later I deteriorated very, very quickly and was in hospital. So the oh. chemotherapy didn't start till June. Okay. It took, between March and June it took that time of just patching me up and trying to keep me okay while I was deteriorating the whole time. So and, by the time I started mourning the chemotherapy. Your beloved dad as well. Yeah. 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 Okay. And sorry, by the time you started yeah. your chemotherapy. I was quite sick. Mm. I was quite mm. sick. And I didn't and I was warned that it would be quite a brutal treatment, but I thought I couldn't be much worse than what I am. Yeah. I was wrong. Oh God. <laughs> it, Sarah. Was, it was very high doses and frequency um, meant that I really didn't have any time where I was not very sick from it however it kept me alive and six months of it we thought well this is I'm here I'm still here and it enabled me to get out of hospital and back home I lived a life that was not what you what most people would say living a life is running around and being able to pick children up from school I, I couldn't live that sort of life but I could live a life in my bubble at home where I was in bed and if I needed help to do anything someone could help mobilize me but it was it was a, a very well version of what I was and unfortunately it started failing and the way it fails is I get meningitis again or pericarditis or my heart right. inflames my brain so it started failing and I developed in meningitis in the end of November and yeah. I was home and this is when I had my second yes. near-death experience. I had been deteriorating with the meningitis for a few days and I have this was my eighth episode of meningitis so oh my I goodness. am pretty used to knowing the signs mm. and I, I can pick them up pretty quickly. I didn't want to go to hospital. Mm. I just fought against it and said, no, I wanted to stay at home just for a little bit longer. This particular day I woke up and I knew I could feel myself deteriorating to the point where breathing became very hard right. and I only had the energy to do that and not much else. I knew if I went to hospital I was not coming home. Mm-hmm. I just I just knew I um I can't give a logical explanation and I can't begin to explain how I had a knowing in me, but I had a knowing that I was not going to be alive the next morning. All I really wanted to do was spend my last day with my family Mm -hmm. in my bed in my home and that was pretty much all and to try and drink in my children, if that makes sense. Yes. Uh, They went off to school that day. And my husband brought them home in the afternoon and we have had a few months of me being at home by that point and their usual routine was to come and hop onto the bed next to me and do homework next to me or read to me and I just sat there holding their hands and tried to give each one of them my little bit of mummy wisdom that I would have given to them on their 21st birthday or on a wedding day or I wanted to give them a few words of 
my limited wisdom if I could, which mm. I did and they didn't do we didn't do anything that night other than just sit and I listened to them chatting to one another, which was magical and just listening to them care for one another and talk to one another. It was really lovely to see the love between my children and I remember thinking how much that meant to me to see that. And then by nine o'clock I had, when you have meningitis, you are in excruciating pain. You So to do all of that while you're in, I was in immense and I had not taken any morphine or any painkillers because I wanted to be present enough even in the pain you can't handle any light so I had sunglasses on even in night time because light from any source a tv or a light or a sun or you can't you cannot handle any light so I lived in I had sunglasses on I had my head was excruciating and you are quite sick in all other physical ways my husband came to bed at 10 30 and I said to him, I do not think I'm going to be here tomorrow. I'm not going to wake up tomorrow. I want you to know I love you and it's okay. And I'm okay. I'm in, I can't do this anymore. And he said, I think we should go to hospital. And I said, well, here's the deal. If I am still here in the morning, take me. Mm-hmm. And he, and I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'm a fighter. You know, I'll fight. Let's just, let, let's just go to sleep and, he lay there looking at me for a while and kept persisting that we should go to hospital. I said, I, please, I just want to be in my own bed tonight. I'll go tomorrow because he knows how much I hate hospital. I've been in there so much. Oh. And so I have a lot of clout when I say, please don't take me just yet. I just, please give me one more night in my bed. So we made a little deal. I'll stay. And um, he fell asleep. He fought it, but he did fall asleep. And I do remember glancing at my alarm clock next to my bed and it was 11.11. And I turned my head back. I wasn't able to move my neck much, but it was like a small little glance and I turned it back a little bit and just shut my eyes and I don't know what time frame it was, but I was just lying there trying to cope with the pain and then I just felt like breathing was getting harder and my head was so bad. And I just felt all my energy slowly draining out of my body and lifting and then I was aware of elevation above my body and then I was aware of the most beautiful beautiful magnificent white light that I knew was love and it was all around me and through me and I was aware of the sound of I remember being aware of the sound of music singing um angels um in the distance but i the sound of the the sound was sort of like very very faint and far off but the white light was just it i can't tell you where the source was but it was everywhere and it it was love and it was love to the power of 20 or 30 of what we know here on earth or and it was unconditional non-judgmental beautiful beautiful love and then I watched like then I was aware of just a projection of my seeing myself as a little girl and seeing like a movie of my life and I can't tell you the time frame it 
time didn't seem to uh, everything I um words are hard to articulate the experience because I don't have words to say it it's I'm trying to use my words but I, I haven't got the language to explain exactly yes I understand so that I'll yep. say I'll say a movie yeah but it wasn't a movie and I'll say like a project but it, 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 I, I saw my life I felt yes. it I I watched it as if I was watching through feeling okay yes this is known uh, as the life review yeah yeah so I felt what I was feeling in a moment but then I also felt what the other people that were in that part of my life were feeling through my choices or through my actions yeah. Um, I felt in that moment or their pain in that moment. So you felt their pain, of, okay, because, because of, of something you'd... Yeah, I'd said or done mm-hmm, or... Mm-hmm. But everything everything that you that I had done or said, I viewed and I watched and not in a judgment way, just in a, a review, I guess it's a, yeah, a review way, just watching it. Um, and then I was aware of my father standing before me and he was in a suit that he was always in. He was always in a suit with a tie and he was in a suit and he had all his beautiful curls and his beautiful, kind, kind eyes and he was communicating with me. He had his hands stretched out for me to come to him and he was communicating to me but not speaking um it was a an exchange or conscious exchange of words but not with words Mm. um he was sending me love he was telling me how much he loved me he was telling me how proud he was of me and he was telling me with tears how he was aware of what i'd been through since he passed he had been aware of the fight I had had and how sick I had been. Yes. And but he was just full of love. The love was beautiful. It, 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 the main thing was love. This this beautiful love was just and I felt peaceful and calm and I he was, had his hand stretched out so I went over and held his hand and he called me Sari Fairy, which is what he used to call me when I was a little girl. <laughs> Mm-hmm. He said, hello, hello, Sari Fairy. And I said, hi, Dad. Um, and then he turned to face behind him and I followed him, his eyes, and looked and I could see two, two lines or two sides of people from my life who had passed, family and friends. It was family and then it was friends and one side was all my father's side and I have not met his mother or father. They passed before I was born, but I knew them. They were there and everyone and my grandparents was smiling and welcoming me and as if if you would on a Christmas Day lunch, welcoming you to come and come and come and be with us and so happy to see you and we're so just all their, sending me all their love and we it it was just an overwhelming feeling of love and everyone just so happy to see me and we started I'll say walking but we won't 
walking. We, we started to go towards this direction. And then as we reached the, my grandparents, I, something stopped me. I knew if I took one more step, and I, I shouldn't say took one more step, but if I stepped over a threshold, which there was no threshold, but there was. Yes. If I stepped over that, I would not be able to go back. Okay. And I don't. I. 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 I my spirit knew this. I, I. I. was aware of this. I looked at my father for confirmation, and he communicated to me that you have a choice now. You can come with me, and you can be well, and you can be healthy, and you can have no pain, or you can go back. Mm, but you gosh. will go back to your sick body, and you will go back to suffering and pain and I just said no I'm not ready mm. I want to go back to my children I made it quick uh, I didn't even have to think about it for a second I just said I actually yelled no no and then it was as if a whole lot of knowledge or consciousness was sort of like absorbed into like a contract like you go back to serve you go back with love you go back and you serve with love that is our purpose and just it was an awareness of our purpose is to love one another our purpose is to serve one another with love we all have one purpose and we are all connected and it's as simple as that mm -hmm. we're, we're here to love one another and serve one another in love and that is my purpose and then I felt myself like falling really, really fast fall, like losing your tummy, like on a roller coaster, lose your tummy fall, falling, falling, falling. And the next thing I was aware, I was in my body gasping to try and breathe and wow. trying, trying to breathe again, which woke my husband up and he was looking at me and trying to find my pulse. I, I, he instantly grabbed my hand and tried to find my pulse and it was just that awareness of <gasps> I'm trying to breathe again. But the feeling of that beautiful, beautiful feeling of unconditional, overwhelming love has stayed with me. So it, you have a sense now, Sarah, that there is a loving force that is at the heart of everything. There's something beautiful, which is is different to perhaps what you might have grown up with. Is that right? You're, what you feel now, what you're convicted about now, you're certain mm. about, it mm. didn't really come up when you didn't really believe that there was this love. This, <laughs> no. I, I, um, I, I like how you have articulated that, this loving force. Those words I would never have said, thought, have any, any understanding of what that actually meant until now. No, I was not brought up thinking there was a loving force or that when we die, we we live on. Our spirit lives on. Right. I was brought up very much with the medical yes. medical world of, you know, when we die, we die yeah. and we don't exist beyond our physical body. And no, I now know that is not true. That is not the case. There wow. is this beautiful, beautiful loving force that loves us all and, and that beautiful unconditional love 
wants us all to know that, wants us to know we are loved and we are being cared for and we are here to look after one another and serve one another in love, through love, with love and with a compassionate love and to connect, to connect through that, to, to truly, truly connect through that love. So your understanding is that we all have a shared purpose, which is to do, as you say, to serve each other in love and to connect through that love. And perhaps our individual callings, would you say, they're the manifestations of how we do this. We've all, there are infinite ways to do it. I think we're all, we all have our own singular purpose, but the singular purpose unites to one purpose. Okay. I think we can all be a warrior of something. A warrior of the people, a warrior of the animals, a warrior of the earth. Mm. And I see this in my children. My youngest one is just drawn now to a life of service for animals and to care for animals. Wow. And my eldest now is of service to people. And I can see how we all express the true essence of our soul through our individual purpose. And we all have, I think, our soul knows what our purpose is and is trying to give us little little tidbits of information to show us where to go and I think if we don't listen to it we get where I think oh I just lost you again so please say that again if we don't listen to it no don't worry it's the connection yeah. it's not your earphones it's the connection it drops out yeah. every sort of if we yeah. okay if we don't listen to our soul's calling mm-hmm. or the essence of our soul the true essence of our soul then we get, I think, like a soul sickness, which manifests as physical sickness. And that's what I think is when we talk about mind-body-soul medicine. I think one can't be well if the other is sick. Your body can't be well if your soul is not honouring its calling or not honouring why it's here. And I believe that we all have a beautiful beautiful unique purpose and a beautiful skill to bring to that and that's that beautiful tapestry of how we all come together in a patchwork Mm. that beautiful patchwork of life where everyone's beautiful skill and unique talents to serve one another in a compassionate love and not in greed and not in an ego Mm. and not in a sense of even success for oneself but just in service that's an incredibly beautiful reflection and mm. I, I wanted to, before we move on to the effects of mm. and the gifts that you came back with and the effects of your NDE, mm. I thought if we could just backtrack a little bit to your mm. life review and your, mm. um, your understanding of others' pain because that seems mm. to have contributed to your understanding mm. of our interconnectedness as people and also um, our interconnectedness with the planet you know mm. this yeah so maybe talk a little bit more about your life review and what you experienced there and whether you also experienced the good effects of your actions as well as the mm. negative the life review is transformational it gives you a beautiful observer perspective of how every every word every action and every word that we that we do on earth has so much power wow and we are we each have a choice in every moment 
what are we going to honour in that moment, in every interaction with a loved one or in every word, every action? We all have a choice. Are we going to do this out of love? Do we turn to love in every moment? And that is what my life review taught me, that in every moment we have choice, in every moment, in every waking moment. As we wake up, do we... Are we grateful for this gift of today? And it is a gift that we wake up. And are we grateful for the fact that we can hear our children outside playing? Are we mm. grateful for the fact that we can see? I, it gave me an expanded awareness of all the gifts that are brought to us every day yeah. and how we honour our love for one another and our and friendships. Not I'm, I'm not just talking about romantic love or love for our children but love for your friends and love for strangers and I can touch on this further later that has been brought even more so to my attention and awareness in having to fund treatment after my near-death experience that has the love for strangers and how a stranger can love you enough to help give you a second chance and to truly honour the beautiful gift that is. I, I think some people don't need a life review to know how to live like this. That's a wonderful I, idea. I am trying to honour what I have learned. The life review didn't necessarily give me the awareness of connectivity to all. That came through at the very end when I said no and I wanted to come back. Yes. I was then given like a fast-forward, quick influx of knowledge of consciousness that there is one consciousness that we all have our own consciousness but there is one united consciousness that we all are and that is every person animal plant every living thing is connected together in one consciousness of love and that connects you to that to the loving force that unites us all together and I think that's why when we see great great tragedy on the other side of the world it affects us so deeply because it's part of us we aren't disconnected we we aren't disconnected from any of that pain or suffering it's part of us and we hurt because it is inflicting pain apart on that part of our soul that is connected to that other and it's there is no disconnect. We are all joined and that is why uniting in love is the answer to everything. It's If we unite in love, then we no longer want to spend millions of dollars on weapons of warfare, but we spend it on feeding the hungry. We no longer want to spend money on building walls to divide countries, but on maybe vaccinating children or developing drugs to say... I, we spend so much money on division that we have created and on creating a separation that if we we have enough resources on this earth to feed everyone, yes. we have enough resources on this earth to look after everyone, but unfortunately we are not choosing love in our actions. Yes. We are choosing we are choosing division and we are choosing man made division. Something something that we've created. Like I my life review has shown me that, that when we reflect on our actions, we would really, we would want to watch it and smile and be proud and be happy 
with how we spent our time on earth and that has impacted me very profoundly so that every day I now wake up and the first thing I say is thank you for the gift of this day and the second thing I say is please help me live every moment with love as my intent every moment and every action and in that I can find true compassionate love that's what that's the effect it has had on me That seems like a good point to leave part one. I hope you enjoyed it. In the next episode, we'll dive into the profound effects of Sarah's NDE and how it's put her on a new career path, one that melds her decades of scientific training and medical expertise with the wisdom she gleaned from her NDE. Please join us then for the wonderful conclusion to Sarah's story. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Spirit Sisters, the podcast, based on my best-selling book of the same name. I really hope you enjoyed this episode and will join me again next time for another intriguing conversation exploring mysteries and marvels. In the meantime, please subscribe so that you won't miss an episode. I also welcome your feedback, so please message me through my website, karinamachado.com, or find me on Facebook at Karina Machado Author. Perhaps you have your own encounter to share. If so, I'd love to hear it. After all, there's nothing more powerful than a story.